Welcome to Appaloosa Radio, where stories come alive. Appaloosa Radio is a service of the Appaloosa Springs Audio Theater. Souvenirs I Still Cherish Helen Stanberry's Story As read by Lindsay Beth Hummel Mama don't allow no music play around here Mama don't allow no music play around here Well, we don't care what mama don't allow We're gonna play a little music anyhow Mama don't allow no music play around here. The young couple had just arrived in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. They had come from California to teach at the university. They sought property with character and with land. They were still amazed by a place with so many trees. Graduate school and the cross-country move had considerably reduced their financial resources. When the agent showed them the large frame house with its towering trees and historic barn, they fell in love with the property. And, it was one of the very few they could afford. It would need some repairs and considerable modernization, but it was still perfect for raising their young sons. A month or so after they had moved in, the young couple approached the barn. Its upper level was strewn with what looked like historical artifacts, things that seemed from another age. When they looked closely at these items, they found that they were actually souvenirs that someone had purchased. Each had a small tag with a notation written on it. For example, a moth-eaten, feathered Indian headdress said, Sioux Nation, South Dakota. A facsimile of the Declaration of Independence had a tag with Independence Hall, Philadelphia, and a dried-up container said, Salmon Eggs, Grand Coulee Dam, Washington. The family was puzzled. What was this collection? It obviously belonged to someone associated with the house. But who? Then, carefully organized in a cardboard box, they found a collection of over 100 postcards. The postcards all seemed to be of the same time period, probably late 1930s, and they came from all over the United States. Only two had any writing on them. One was addressed to Mr. S.O. Stanberry and was signed Helen. It simply said, mailed package of my souvenirs, hope they arrive safely. It was postmarked Kalispell, Montana. The second was a cartoon postcard of a car loaded with souvenirs. On the front someone had written Helen and Ralph. The message on the back simply said, Heading home, S.E. Eggers. The postcard had been cancelled, but there was no marking where. The young wife took the box of postcards into the house and placed them in a safe place. Later, she inserted each card into a plastic sleeve. As she looked through them, she wondered, who was Helen?
I was a rich white girl who had never chosen to marry. Any of my fellow southern women would have called me a spinster. I was Miss Helen Elizabeth Stanbury when I was born, and that is how I died. But lonely I was not. I lived a satisfying and sexually fulfilling life of my own choosing, and I did it while teaching school in Ashe County, North Carolina, a forlorn place of high poverty and limited vistas. I was a rich girl, the oldest daughter of lumber baron S.O. Stanbury. He had sawmills all over western North Carolina, was a partner in the region's principal railroad, and owned our town's only bank. He drove either a flashy Packard or a dependable Cadillac, while our neighbors and employees drove rustic Model T trucks. We had a large, three-story, white frame house with central heating and three large bathrooms. Our neighbors and employees lived in shanties with potbelly stoves and outhouses built right over their creeks. My father was a high-order mason, so he was known and welcomed everywhere. My father was also a Presbyterian elder, a religious order three steps above the all-too-prevalent Baptists. Because everyone knew my father, everyone knew me. But because they knew my father, they never told him about what I did. No one ever told him that I smoked cigarettes and drank cocktails, and I climbed into the hayloft with many very virile men. If you have not yet figured it out, my father spoiled me. He gave me whatever I wanted. That was especially true after my younger sister died and my mother entered her perpetual depression. I was the bundle of unbridled joy who brightened my father's home life, so he spoiled me. The only thing my father ever denied me was the freedom to leave home after I graduated from high school, I wanted to attend what was then called Women's College in Greensboro. I applied and was accepted with an honors and admission distinction. However, as the day to leave the mountains for the Piedmont arrived, my father refused to let me go. He said he needed me, and that ended the matter. I applied instead to the state normal school that had opened in nearby Boone. I finished my teaching program in only 22 months and became a North Carolina public school teacher. I taught public school for 40 years from 1926 to 1966, all here in Ashe County, and almost all of it teaching fifth grade. Instead of traveling myself, I used my classroom to take my very isolated students on a stay-at-home tour of the world. One week we'd visit the Arab nations where Islam was the only religion, in another, we'd visit Africa and see the magnificent animals who live there. In another, we'd travel high into the Andes and meet the Incas. I had weeks on all the major European nations. Then I would devote an entire month to touring the incredible United States. In the subsequent weeks, we'd visit Canada and Mexico. When I say that my fifth grade students were isolated, that's really an understatement. Most of the children I taught would during their entire lifetimes venture no further than either the town of Boone, 11 miles away, or the town of Jefferson, 14 miles away. And it was usually one or the other, seldom both. They might go to help their father sell his tobacco crop to the buyers who came up the mountain once a year. Or for a special occasion, they might get the very rare opportunity to go shopping at the J.C. Penney's or the Hunt Brothers department store. Travel to other North Carolina cities like Charlotte, Winston-Salem, Greensboro, or Raleigh may well have been a trip to the moon. My students lived in closely packed small communities where everyone, and I mean everyone, was directly related. One hollow might include 
four generations of cousins, aunts, grandparents, and siblings, all with the same surname and living within a couple hundred feet of each other. If someone said their last name like Triplet, Winkler, Eggers, Furness, Green, Ramey, Norris, Moritz, Wade, Hampton, or Willison, everyone knew exactly where they lived and who all their relatives were. My students all spoke a regional dialect that no outsider could understand, and they used words with an Elizabethan origin, far removed from the American language spoken on the radio. Linguists would say that the so-called Appalachian dialect uses a vowel shift, where words like wire and fire become war and far. And if you were hired for a new job, you would tell folks I was hard. Nearly all my students left school after the eighth grade, either to work in the lumber operations or to get married and start having babies. Ash County is rural Appalachia. Desperately poor families came into the isolated mountains during the years following the Revolutionary War, and they stayed, occupying the same hollow for generations. Until the lumber boom of the 1890s, Ash County families subsisted on hunting, raising pipe tobacco, and making untaxed corn whiskey. My grandfather was one of the very first to see the potential of large-scale lumber operations moving cut lumber from Watauga and Ash counties to the voracious, ever-expanding markets of the North. One of Daniel Boone's original financial partners for his game hunting business was a Stanberry. He accompanied Boone on one of his expeditions and liked the area where Boone had set up his base camp. It was relatively flat and had a free-flowing creek and lots of timber. There have been Stanberry families in Todd ever since. My grandfather, Noah Stanberry, was like me, a schoolteacher. He avoided having to fight in the Civil War by traveling west. He came back to Todd with cash money and the idea of expanding the family's one sawmill into a revenue-generating machine. Succeed he did. My father, Sylvanus Oscar Stanberry, built on what my grandfather had started. He became the head of a regional lumber empire. When I was born in 1906, the various Stanberry timber harvesting operations and lumber mills employed nearly a thousand men. It shipped, on average, two full trainloads of finished lumber each week of the year. It was, as I said, a regional lumber empire. I began doing my stay-at-home tours in my classroom during my second full year of teaching. The state required us to teach a unit on geography. I decided to liven my geography unit by taking my students on a pretend trip. The unit worked so well, I did it again the next year. I eventually expanded the activity to become a major component of my curriculum adding writing and mathematics assignments to correspond to the various trips. In 1936, I'd been doing the curriculum for a decade and had gotten quite good at it, making it richer and more meaningful for my students. That was also the first year that I hosted a student teacher, a young teacher in training who served as my intern. The local teacher's college had assigned a professor to supervise the activities of these student teachers. When she visited my classroom, she sent back glowing reports. Her dean and college's vice president also visited my class. Someone, I don't remember who, came up with the idea of bringing a film crew from Raleigh to film my class. They did the actual filming during February 1937. I remember how much snow was on the ground and how difficult it was for the movie crew to move the heavy equipment into my room. I also remember going to my father and asking him for money to buy the kids presentable clothes. We don't want the world to see their bare feet and patched up hand-me-downs. I've never done another movie. It was so much work. Makeup, rehearsals, sound checks, lighting checks, film checks, getting the kids to practice their lines. So much work. But after a week, it was finished, and I thought my life would return to its normal. 
However, the North Carolina Department of Public Education decided to submit the film to a contest sponsored by a breakfast cereal company. It was in May of 1937 when I saw a bevy of strangers descend on our not-so-little country school. At the principal's command, each classroom marched into the gymnasium, took their assigned seats in the bleachers. My fifth grade class was the last to be announced. We were led to a group of chairs on the floor of the basketball court right in front of the stage. There was a large banner draped across the stage with the words, National Winner printed on it. First, the superintendent of our local school district spoke. Too long and too hyperbolic, I thought. Then the dean of the teacher's college spoke, shorter and more to the point. Finally, the state superintendent of the public instruction spoke. He was an elected official and was very familiar with congratulatory speeches, simply changing the recipient's name and awards according to the occasion. He introduced the vice president for publicity for the breakfast cereal company. Now that was a man. Tall, dark hair, great body. He'd been a professional baseball player before joining the corporation. Finally, I was invited on stage with two of my fifth grade students. Everyone cheered and clapped, our photographs were taken, and I was handed a check for $5,000. I also learned that I was to travel to Idaho the following summer, 1938, to keynote a conference of selected national education leaders. A regional college had donated the use of its Mountain Lodge facility for the conference. Before the award, I was a fifth grade teacher at a rural school. After its announcement, I was a local celebrity. Everywhere that I went, people would congratulate me, I felt that while they were congratulating me, they were also expressing pride in us, the people of the mountains. Because the people of the mountains had been isolated for so long, people often viewed us as backwards hillbillies. We talked strange, never wore shoes, and spent all our time either making or consuming homemade liquor. Then I won the national award. People could feel proud being who they were. My father was on one hand extremely proud of my accomplishments, and on the other, fearful that I might be somehow harmed by the trip west. He asserted he would come with me every step of the way. He was a part owner of the Virginia Creeper Logging Railroad that moved logs and lumber from our area to the larger processing mills in Abington, Virginia. As a railroad owner, he had a special pass that let him ride almost any other railroad for free. So he reasoned he could both protect his daughter and his pocketbook. To my mind, this would be a terrible prospect First, I knew he would want to make the trip as short as possible. Second, he would use the trip to continue to run his business operations, sending orders back and forth by Western Union. However, he would constantly worry that things weren't going well. As a result, he would make a terrible traveling partner. Third, and most importantly, he had no desire to see the rest of the country. He did not like cities, did not care about history or cultural activities, and always suspected the Yankees, yes, those Yankees, of trying to cheat him. He avoided Yankees whenever he could. Better to stay where he knew the folks and where they knew him. The dictionary has a word for his condition. Xenophobic. Fearing of strange people or strange places. For me, the trip offered an opportunity to really travel. Not pretend to travel, but to actually visit the places I told my students about. As I thought about the coming trip, I decided against traveling by train. Too confining, too limiting, too schedule-bound. I decided that I wanted to do a car trip. A car trip that would let me see America. I began collecting maps, lots and lots of maps, and planning many possible routes. There were only three problems with my plans. First, I did not own a car. My father, 
one of his trusted men drove me to wherever I needed to go. I had a driver's license, but no car. Second, even though I had my license, I was not confident in my own driving abilities, especially since I would not only be driving on strange roads, but would also have to navigate in places that I had never been. If I had a driver, then I felt confident that I could be an effective navigator. Third, even though I was 32 years old, I was still a southern woman who needed the protection of a chaperone. Once I had fully explained my plans to my father, he proved, to my surprise, to be responsive to them. In December 1937, he bought me my Christmas present. In the early 1930s, the Cord was the most desirable luxury car in the country. It was so low that it did not need a running board. It had a massive 125 horsepower engine, and it had every conceivable luxury. It was the car of the Hollywood elite. However, the depression hit the company hard, and for several years, production stopped. Then, in 1936, the company presented a wholly redesigned vehicle that was the hit of the New York Automobile Show. The company sold over a thousand cars on the floor of the auto show. A midnight blue car was purchased there by a surgeon who lived in Savannah, Georgia. It was shipped to him by train in April 1937. He drove it for two months, but it kept having vapor lock problems and would have to be towed into the cold dealer for repairs. Finally, totally frustrated, the surgeon demanded his money back. The dealer attempted to resell the car but had no success. Then somehow, in late November, my father heard about the cord and drove to Savannah, where he offered the dealer half of the car's original sales price. The dealer accepted the offer. My father took the car to his most trusted mechanic. For $4.50 in parts, the mechanic fixed the problem, and the midnight blue cord ran perfectly after that. The slightly used, well-priced midnight blue cord became my 1937 Christmas present. Finding my second driver was easier than I thought it would be. My cousin, Ralph Norris, my mother's older brother's youngest son, graduated from Wake Forest University in 1936 and was now working with my father in the family business. Ralph was something of a daredevil. He rode motorcycles, flew airplanes, and raced across the water in a very new sport of water skiing. He was also an excellent driver. He could drive all our company's equipment and could even back a dump truck into the tightest of parking spaces. It was not Ralph's driving ability that worried my dad. He was worried about Ralph's propensity for excessive speed. Ralph liked to brag that he had outrun the cops who were chasing him. My father sternly warned him, if you get one speeding ticket, just one, you will no longer work for my company. Ralph promised to obey the law. Besides, he knew that I would not permit misbehavior. I was more than willing to deposit him and his suitcase alongside the highway, wherever it may be. And on this trip, it might well be far from the comforts of civilized town. Ralph proved to be an excellent driver. His sense of humor made the empty miles go by quickly. His innate understanding of navigation kept us from getting too lost. Most importantly, he knew exactly when to baby and when to cajole the blue cord into maximum efficiency. It seemed to like him, always doing whatever he asked. The most troublesome problem was finding a suitable chaperone. It shouldn't have been hard, but my mother tasked herself with finding the right chaperone. She never explained what right meant. She rejected everyone that either my father or I suggested. My trip was scheduled to start three days after the end of the school term. Three weeks before then, we were still proposing potential chaperones, only to have her reject them. I was never sure why she was doing it. Was she frightened that I might not return home? Did she need to assert control, knowing that over all other aspects of the trip, she had no control? Did she want to avoid appearing to favor one side of the family over the other? She never talked about her feelings or her perceptions. All she ever said was that she wanted me to be safe. I felt perfectly safe with young Ralph as my driver. 
He looked like, and sometimes acted like, Errol Flynn. Good reflexes, excellent shot, and was a quick read of the situation. What more protection would a southern lady ever need? No, the chaperone's sole purpose was to preserve the image of propriety. School teachers did not take extended trips alone with dashing young gentlemen. Someone else had to come along, someone my mother would accept. I don't remember who suggested the senior, Mr. Stacy C. Eggers. He had been my grandfather's primary lawyer, and he had often worked with my father. But he had retired fifteen years ago, and was now approaching seventy-five. He was more than a little deaf, walked with a cane, and smoked an endless succession of high-quality cigars. If your criterion was protection from an external threat, he was an unlikely choice. Even when he was a young man, he was not reputed to be a man of quick action. He was a lawyer who told stories, and because he told stories, people liked him. Because people liked him, they forgave his faults. He had once made a mistake in a will that resulted in the whole will being thrown out, something that some of the descendants never forgave. Still, it was hard not to like him, really like him. When I suggested the senior Mr. Eggers, my mother harumphed. It had not been her idea. Still, she did not reject it. A couple days later, she suggested, as if it had been her idea, that old man Eggers would be a great chaperone for Helen's trip. Once he agreed, I had an additional task. What exactly was Mr. Eggers going to do on this trip? I decided that his best role was to be the keeper of my money. I bought a small metal box and a lock. It was just large enough for my cash and my father's handgun. Mr. Eggers kept the box. Whenever I asked, he paid the bill and he kept a receipt of all my expenses. Mr. Eggers was scrupulously honest. Not a single penny was ever lost or not accounted for. With a chaperone that my mother had approved, with a capable young driver, and with a dependable car, I had all that I needed for my trip. I was ready for the great adventure of my lifetime.